We're called to a time of fellowship this morning out of Psalm 119. You have dealt well with your servant, O Lord, according to your word. Teach me good judgment and knowledge, for I believe in your commandments. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. You are good and do good. Teach me your statutes. The insolence smear me with lies, but with my whole heart I keep your precepts. Their heart is unfeeling like fat, but I delight in your law. For it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The thrust of this psalm is that the Father uses affliction so that we can learn his law. This great piece in Psalm 119 was written as a prayer by the psalmist. We don't know his name, but he tells us that in the furnace of affliction, we share in the sufferings of Christ and grow in good judgment and knowledge. We've got to remember that Jesus was not a wimp. He was thrust into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Here he was tempted to a greater degree than Adam. He was in the wilderness, not the garden. He was fasting 40 days. Adam and Eve were well fed, but Christ relied upon God's word. And this morning, allow God's word to use the afflictions in your life to draw you closer to God. May the word of God preached this morning do that for us. Please turn in your Bibles to the book of Zechariah, as well as in your bulletins, the, the outline. Zechariah chapter 2, we're now on the third vision that Zechariah gives us in this incredible prophecy. And uh, we'll walk away through this chapter um, as we have the, the previous ones. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of Almighty God, a king. And uh, though he be our father, nevertheless he is our king. And so... It's appropriate for us, out of reverence and respect, to stand at the reading of his word. Please stand together with me. Hear now the word of King Jesus. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, where are you going? And he said to me, to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him, and said to, uh, to him, Run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls, because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. Ho there, flee from the land of the... Of the north, declares the Lord. For I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, escape you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves then you will know that the Lord your hosts, or I'm sorry, the Lord of hosts has sent me. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. And behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. And many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And the Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the holy land, and will again choose Jerusalem. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. That's Father, reading of God's word. Let's pray. Father, what a delight and joy it is to now come before you, our Father, 
and now fellowship with you as you feed us by your word. God, we do pray you would draw near and you'd lift us up and enable us, oh God, now to, to, to genuinely feed and feast upon your word. Through this foolish medium of preaching, oh God, we pray that you would nevertheless feed your sheep, that we would grow up in all ways unto Christ, and that the mind of Christ indeed would govern our, our, us and be that which leads us and drives us in this life. Lord, bless this time. Give me grace to preach your word with fidelity, and, and Lord, use it in our lives unto your glory. Exalt your name now, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. As we approach this vision, as well as all of the visions, to be honest, of this book, it is helpful for us to keep in mind a prophetic tool, which I have described in the past for many of you, but some of you are, are, would not know it, so I'm going to describe it again, and that prophetic tool is called telescoping. Okay, so a telescope has two lenses, the near and the far. By themselves, that you, if you looked at the world through them, they'd be blurry, But when you line them up and you look through the close lens at the image on the far lens, you see things that the unaided eye could never see. And so we're called to understand this sense of uh, prophetic discourse in Scripture. So for example, with the signs of the time, um, if you just look at a trial, a tragedy, a difficulty, and you forget what it's for you and I will be led to perhaps questioning God's goodness. If you and I just look at the end time and what God's going to do there, you and I would be uh, possibly uh, um, no earthly good. But when we look at the present and through the present gaze upon the end, that's when we see as we ought to see. Think of the time when there were these Galileans from the north Jews who came down to worship in the temple and Pilate, for whatever reason, ordered his soldiers to kill them and they mingled the, the, the Galileans' blood with their sacrifice. And then that was told to Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said? He, he looked through this trial at the end. He said, and he answered them and said, do you, do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all of the Galileans? Because they suffered this fate, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Brothers and sisters, Christ saw it. And our call is to do uh, the same, to look through at the end. And yet, I wonder how many of the prophets, when they gave the prophecies, understood they were looking through a telescope. How many recognize that? I think 1 Peter 1, 20, or 10 through 12 gives us an indication that they, that they knew something was up. But nevertheless, did they realize that, that oftentimes what they were seeing was but the shadow of something greater at the end? Think of Isaiah 7. Isaiah prophesied about a young maiden who's going to give birth to a child. And before that child was roughly two to three years old, the, the northern kingdoms um, whom the, uh, Judah was afraid of, Israel, Syria, they'd be gone. Well, we know Isaiah 7 from Matthew 1 is a prophecy of Jesus Christ. So Isaiah was proclaiming about a child which ultimately is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Near lens, far lens. Did he understand that? But you know what? We do. And because we understand that, when we come to a book like Zechariah, which is filled with this telescoping faculty or uh, facility, for example, this morning we're looking at God's ultimate plan for Jerusalem. And that ultimate plan, brothers and sisters, involved what he was prophesying here, involved the city in which Zechariah was currently living. We recognize that. So it did have relevance to what they were living and how they were living and the building up of this uh, city. But we also know from Zechariah massively that the primary focus of Jerusalem is the new Jerusalem, the final Jerusalem, the city in which you and I currently dwell. So this morning, if you keep that in mind, especially today, and as we go through this, you will see indeed that uh, God is describing in this passage, as I've titled here, the consummation of God's redemptive plan, a program for Jerusalem. 
Notice with me, if you would, the foretaste of this redemptive program, verses 1 through 5. We read verse 1. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man. Now in the Greek, or the Hebrew, from verse 4, we know this man's a young man. He's, he's, he's the equivalent of God's people living in Jerusalem at that time, who were thinking that the words and the promises about Jerusalem were about this city. So this young man is going out with a measuring rod to measure the land. A measuring um, a line in his hand. Now we think of that, we go back to chapter 1, his first vision, verse 16, look with me there, and we read, Therefore thus says, Lord, I will return to Jerusalem with uh, compassion. My house will be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and a measuring line will be sketched over Jerusalem. So we go, aha, see, God's already in the first vision told us he's going to restore Jerusalem. And he would do that in, in, in 80 years. Under the ministry of Nehemiah and Ezra, um, they would indeed rebuild the city walls and, re, and get the worship going a lot better. Um, so indeed, that was part of God's, God's will. However, we know something's up here because the word for measuring line in verse 1 of chapter 2 is different from the word in one sixteen. In 116, that was the measuring line that you'd see when, when you go to a building site. They have all the stakes and the lines attached, all of the stakes sort of tells you what the building's going to look like. The measuring line in chapter 2, verse 1, is not that. This is simply a length, a set length of cord that was used for measurement. So in essence, this man, knowing that Jerusalem's going to be rebuilt, is going out to figure out the size of the city. Notice with me verse 2. We read, so I, so I said, where are you going? And he answered me to measure Jerusalem, to see how wide it is and how long it is. He wants to know how much boulders, how much raw material do we need to get those walls back up? So I got to know what the, what's, the, what's the, the scope of this building project. But he's so misled. See, he's the young man, the, the immature man, who's only looking at things temporally, looking at the world very, very literally, literally, uh, um, right, horizontally. He's not looking up. He's looking horizontally. And so he's, uh, he's thinking, we're going to build this? How much, how much stone? And then we pick it up in verse 3. And behold, the angel who was speaking with me was going out, and another angel was coming out to meet him. So in essence, in this vision, this angel who's, who's, who's giving this tour in these visions to Zechariah leaves Zechariah and, starts in, and, go, and goes into the, a vision. And there he's met by another angel who tells him, hurry, go, um, um, run, speak to the young man saying Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls. There's what you're doing you don't need to, uh, to do. Because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. Man, you do not need to measure those walls. You're not understanding. God is going to rebuild Jerusalem in such a way that it's going to be so big. Ever growing is the idea. It's going to be expanding all the time such that you will not need walls. You can't put walls around it. In fact, on top of that... It's going to be a prosperity, and that's the significance of, of many cattle within it. You know, Jews didn't eat meat, and they didn't eat meat not because they couldn't eat it, but because it was so expensive. Think of the prodigal and uh, um, the fattened calf, right? Wealthy people typically had one cow that they were fattening in case someone wealthy came in or someone important. They could kill that fattened calf and give them the best meal ever, okay? Well, this city is going to be jam-packed with cattle, which speaks of feasting, the best meal, pot. that'll be our daily food, cattle. So it's a picture of prosperity, of wonderfulness, of a, um, a greatness, of this expanding, growing city without walls. Now clearly, I hope you see by this, just verses 1 through 4, we are not talking about the literal city. In fact, in that day, buildings or, or cities in Palestine all had walls because a city without wall was vulnerable. In fact, we get that because or because of that, Proverbs 25, 28 says, like a city without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. 
So it's, everyone knows you don't have a city without walls. It can't be the little city. In fact, the city has always had walls when it was inhabited um, from this point on. So what is this uh, city? Furthermore, brothers and sisters, throughout Zechariah, we know the temple and the city are not the literal temple and literal city. That's the shadow of the substance that God is prophesying here. That's, we're talking here about the far lens. So, for example, go to Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12. When it comes to the temple, notice what we read. Then says, then say to him, thus says the Lord of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch. We're talking about Jesus Christ. He will branch out from where he is, and he will build the temple of the Lord. This is a picture of Christ building the church. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. He will bear the, the, the honor and sit and rule on his throne. Clearly, brothers and sisters, this is a picture of Christ building the body of Christ, which 1 Corinthians 3.16 says is a temple. Okay, He's building the temple of God, the body of Jesus Christ, the church. That's the prophecy. And likewise, Jerusalem, if you go to 14 verse 8, I referenced this a couple weeks back, same verse. In the ages to come, the consummation of this world, this is what we read about Jerusalem. And it will come about in that day that living waters will flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea. It will be a summer. It will be in summer as well as in winter. Zechariah is, is, is the fa- a basis and foundation of Revelation 22 that describes the Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, which will have these streams. Uh, the stream, the, uh, the river of life. And we know from Galatians 4, I referenced this a couple weeks back, verse 25 and 26, that the Jerusalem, when we're saved, we become members of the city of Jerusalem. So brothers and sisters, when we read about this incredible description of this Jerusalem that God is going to rebuild, we recognize that Jerusalem is the city of God, the kingdom of God. The body of Christ, the salvation that you and I currently enjoy. You and I are members of that city. That is why this prophecy was one of the favorites amongst persecuted Christians, especially in the Reformation. Because, brothers and sisters, this is all about them. It's all about us. It's, we're, we are living at the consummation of the, many of these promises. These promises began to come true when Jesus Christ came back. We're part of the city of Jerusalem. Now, brothers and sisters, it's a description of this growing, ever-growing city, but it doesn't have walls, which means if you're living in that time, your first thought is an alarm. A city without walls, that means we're vulnerable. It's dangerous. And so we quickly go to verse 5. And the emphatic in the Hebrew, for I... That's, that's in the place of, of emphasis. There's, no, there's not going to be walls. Because it's going to be so lush and so, so growing and so great. But I, declares the Lord, will be a wall of fire around her. And I will be the glory in her midst. Tells us two things about this future Jerusalem city. Number one. Its protection will be God. Now, would you notice the wall of fire is reminiscent, very close in terms of parallel to Exodus 14.24 and the reality that God in the wilderness was the wall of fire around his people. He protected them. But yet there's more. There's more here because in the ancient day in Palestine, if you want to conquer a city, guess how you went about it? Because they all had walls. How did you conquer those walls? How did you breach them? Well, you lit the gates on fire. So a very typical way of, of attacking a city was through fire. Well, brothers and sisters, this city that, 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 that God's building here is protected by fire. How do you conquer a wall of fire with fire? You, you can't. The picture here is inviolable. Inviolable. It's, it, it's what comes to, uh, to mind in Matthew 16, 18, where, where Christ says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The new Jerusalem will be unconquerable, no matter what might happen in this world. Think about it. At this time in Zechariah's life, God's people had just lived through the last 70 years, lived through the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. God says, I'm building a city that will be impervious to this world. 
I remember years ago hearing a sermon, a story about when, when China became communist. The first thing that they did is they, they didn't want Christians assembling. They didn't want churches. So, they, so they, they transported these members of the churches to different parts of their, of their um, uh, a nation. And you know what those Christians did? They shared the gospel. And you know what happened? Those little tiny, you know, those 15 people huddled in a little small church became 15 churches. Which then the Chinese government proceeded to disband and spread those people out. You can't stop the Jerusalem of God. You can't. There's nothing in this world. You may attack it. You may, someone may come here, round us up, and kill us. But you can't stop Jerusalem. That's the idea. It will be impervious. This Jerusalem that God's building, no man, no nation, no force can overthrow it. And then secondly, would you notice he says here that, that he would also be the glory in her midst. The idea behind that, the word glory is the word kaved, kavod. And it means heaviness or weight. That, you know what that tells us? That tells us that the thing around which the city, the city will revolve is God and his character. Makes me think of the wilderness wandering. Everywhere God's people, when the tabernacle was being built, was built, everywhere God's people stopped. Do you know what they put in the middle of the camp? The tabernacle. Picturing, and, and all the, the tents were pitched around the, the tabernacle. Picturing that Christ, worship, God is at the center of your existence. This new Jerusalem, God will be the focus. God will be the center. God is the weight that drives them. God is the, is the burden that consumes them. God is the muse of their hearts. God is that which will... Which will uh, determine what they do, why they do it, when they do it. It'll all be about God. Incredible. And brothers and sisters, by way of application, those two truths are so glorious if you meditate on them, realizing he's talking about the city of Jerusalem, which began with Christ and which comes to fulfillment at the second coming. Which means we're living in the city of Jerusalem. You're living in a, um, a city which is inviolable. It'll always be there. No matter where we are, no matter what we're doing, the city of Jerusalem of which we are a part will be there. Secondly, the city of Jerusalem ought not to be, is not a protected, um, right? It's not a protector, not secondly, it's part of it. It's not therefore protected by what we do. It's protected by God. In Exodus 14, 14, God said, I will fight for you while you keep silence. That's the idea. God is going to protect this church. His church. Secondly, we see that God is the glory in her midst. Do you know what that means, brothers and sisters? That means that for you and I, if we're going to be healthy, we want God to be that which drives us. You know, Proverbs says, as a water face reflects face, the heart of man reflects man. Look at your life, brothers and sisters, and ask yourself, is God's character that which drives you on a weekly basis? Is it? And, and you go, well, yeah, yeah, in theory, sure. Well, let's just quickly do a quick survey. What is it that burdens you? Well, I know. What do you talk about most this past week? What was, if you had to characterize your conversation in your home, what was the topic of that conversation? What was it, brothers and sisters, that made you grieve this past week? What made you upset? Boy, may God give us the grace to realize health in our walks comes as you and I are grieved by the things that grieve God, are burdened by the things that burden God. In fact, are driven and burdened by God himself, his glory, his beauty, his greatness, his loveliness, his kindness, his transcendency. All right, that being said, brothers and sisters, guess what? We're done with the vision. That's vision three. We're all done. Verses uh, six through 13 Guess what? That's a psalm. The meter is in the Hebrew completely different. Most translations don't even show it. Um, there's a few out there that do show it. Um, but this is a psalm. Verses 6 through 13 is a psalm. And it has two strophes. Two sections, if you will. Maybe I use the wrong word, strophe. But two sections. Okay, but it's a psalm. It's a didactic psalm, if you wanted its genre. So... Zechariah wrote it. So he saw the fifth vision, 
And it moved him so much, he decided, I'm going to pen a psalm. And through the inspiration of the Spirit of God, he wrote down 6 through 13, which contains two didactic exhortations, though put to meter, it met, it's, has meter to it, two didactic exhortations to the body of Christ. First, those who are in compromise and those who are faithful. Notice with me the first one, the call to the compromised people of God living in the world. This is Zechariah's, this is God's application. Verse 6, mine says, ho there. Now yours doesn't probably translate that way, but the Hebrew word itself is the word ho in the Hebrew. And uh, that's why the New American Standard opted, because how do you translate this? This word ho is the same word used in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah says, woe is me. Is he really? And, and that's a, that's a self maledict Benediction, malediction, where, where Isaiah is saying, damned to hell am I, cursed am I, because my eyes have seen God. That's this word. But it also can be used outside of the context of a malediction. Um, and in this case, we would translate it, uh, the, the New American Standard, there's a lot of discussion. How should this be translated? Um, I think it's more of a wake up. It's a sobriety statement. It's not woe is you, but wake up. Reader, take note, okay, because he's talking to compromised saints. So notice, ho there, wake up, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. The four winds of the heavens would be the four points of the compass. So this first one is, 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 is written, this first verse, is written with the mind that God's people are, have been dispersed throughout the world. So we're talking places like Babylon, Syria, Moab, Ammon, Edom, Egypt. At this time, God's people were living in all those places and more. And so this is generically, we're starting out generically, a little bit broad. Every child of God living outside of Jerusalem he says, wake up, okay? Flee, the word for flee, noose. And it means to run for your lives. This is a strong word. Run for your lives. Ho there, your ho, run from your lives. Run uh, for, uh, for, uh, for your lives. Um, it speaks of this flight that where your life hangs in the balance. Now I want you to think with me a second. When... In 538, Cyrus said, anyone in the Jewish people, go back to Palestine. Here's money. Here's the utensils of the, the temple. Go back and rebuild your temple, rebuild your city. Okay, 538 that occurred. And you know that there were millions upon millions of Jews. Jeremiah 20 told God's people that when they go into exile, they need to build homes. Don't resent living there. Build homes, bless the nation in which you, you live. Be, marry, have children, grow, the whole bit. And God's people did that on steroids. They, they, they found Babylon and, and, and the rest of the world quite comfortable. And so when they were there, um, I've got the quotes, we'll read it in one moment. They became paganized. They became so happy to live where they were, they didn't want to leave. So when 538 came, how many Jews actually returned? Do you remember? 40,360. That's it. Now, that sounds like a lot of people, half a football stadium. But you realize if there's millions upon millions of Jews living in the diaspora, that's not, any, that's not very many people at all. Why didn't they go back? Look at the, the two quotes. MacArthur speaking of Daniel 10. You want to know why Daniel is so burdened? The people didn't go back. They were comfortable. They were sufficiently paganized. They were enmeshed in the society in which they lived. They were prosperous. They were absorbed. They were too involved to care about the promised land, too involved to care about the rebuilding of, of Jerusalem, too involved to care about restoring the temple. They couldn't be burdened by that. Okay, God wants to do this, but guys, i got a business to run. I've got children who, who are in a great school and a great sports program. I don't want to take them from that, right? And, and, and Johnny, man, he has a great tutor. Why would I leave them? No way, we're not going to go. They were enmeshed. Sinclair Ferguson, I love his, his words. Those who could not sing the Lord's song in a foreign land came to the point where they had no desire either to sing it in the Lord's land. And that's why so few went back. So brothers and sisters, you've got to realize at this point, 
That was, that's why Daniel in Daniel 10 is so burdened. He, the people of God had become compromised. You think millions would have gone back. No. They were dead to the Lord. Now, that, I'm not saying they weren't, they weren't uh, uh, saved. But they were, they, were, they were emotionally dead unto the Lord. They didn't care anymore. They, uh, Christianity, Judaism, was a religion that they did. When they went to the temple or when they went to the, uh, to the synagogue, um, there wasn't a temple. When they went to the synagogue. But, but after that, we're going to live life. So God, so through Zechariah, Zechariah says, man, if that's true, if what I just, what, what that vision is true, which it is, then guys, get out of the world. Go to Jerusalem. Di- dive into it. Enjoy it. Dive in. Dive into the church. Dive into the kingdom of God. That's what should define you, not the things of the world. Then would you notice with me verse 7? He gets more specific. He says, Ho, Zion. Okay? Um, wake up, Zion. And this is significant because Zion is another word for Jerusalem throughout Zechariah and the Bible. Interesting, he's calling the people of God dispersed Jerusalem. You see, he, he knows. He's not talking about the literal city. He's talking about what Jerusalem is, which is the people of God. Just like if we had a church building, you, you wouldn't say, that's our church. You'd say, that's a church building. This is the church. The people of God constitute the church, not a building. Likewise here, ho, wake up Zion. Escape, Malat. Escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. Interesting. The word Malat is very similar to the word noose. It means to run for your life, but it's a little bit different nuance. Noose means, speaks of people who are free, who can get out. Malat means, is, is now one more degree of being entrenched. Malat is, is, is talking about people who are now in it, in a prison, in a relationship with the world that they shouldn't have. Okay? And notice the relationship here is with the daughter of Babylon. Interesting. In that day, it was very common for wealthy people to um, get slaves as playmates for their children. God's people were those slaves. That's the, the imagery here. You become so friendly with the daughter of Babylon. Now, the significance of Babylon, think about it. At this point, Babylon had fallen. By 520, there was no Babylon. It was gone. Persia was the one who reigned. So why would he, he say, leave, you've been enmeshed or escape from the daughter of Babylon? Because, brothers and sisters, get this. Because it was Babylon with which God's people slept it was with Babylon with which God's people sinned during this exile time. They became enmeshed and paganized with Babylon. Babylon in the Bible from this point on became synonymous with the fallen world in which we live. Such that by the end time, remember what we read in Revelation 14, and another angel, a second one, followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She, it's a female, who has made all the nations drink of the wine of the passion of her immorality. Well, if you are in Zechariah, go to Zechariah 5, verse 5, and you can read about 5, verse 5. We'll get there in a couple weeks. Um, There's this vision of this, it's vision number 7. It's of this woman named Wickedness. And that's where Revelation gets this idea of Babylon, being a female uh, who basically has whored herself out to the people of God, and God's people have slept with her and have been defiled by her. Okay, well, that's what, what, what's being spoken about here. Now, he, he's saying, hey, wake up, guys. If you're not so entrenched, get out. But if you are entrenched, you who are, who are living with the daughter, get out of there. Get a, make a departure. Do what you got to do. If you got to cut off your hand, cut off your hand. If you got to poke out your eye, poke out your eye. We're not talking literal here, right? Do what you got to do to get away from the defilement of the world in which you live. That's Zechariah's first exhortation. Brothers and sisters, if that's what God's doing in the kingdom of God this day, building this impervious kingdom, this impervious city, which revolves around the glory and the greatness of God, then, brothers and sisters, where you and I are compromised, and I'll, let, let, me, let me make a strong statement, that's all of us. Every one of us, 
where you're compromised. Do, brother and sisters, just don't hear this and go, man, I'm sure glad Bob's hearing this. Take this as you're from yourself. This is you. Where are you and I too closely aligned with this world? Where have you and I compromised such that the things of this world make us angry and, 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 and compromise our witness? Where the things of this life um, uh, bring us to, to um, all kinds of, of bad reactions and proactions, right? Brothers and sisters, where are we compromised? Zachariah's saying, Christian, flee. Why now? And this is it. Why? Because if you don't flee, God's going to get you. Notice with me verse 8. It's incredible. Why? For thus says the Lord. This is why. After glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. I'll talk about that in one moment. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. First reason why is because of God's love. But first, let's deal with the text. After glory, he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. Brothers and sisters, I've read a ton of commentaries on that phrase. This is the most difficult passage, uh, a sentence in the book of Zechariah to translate. Okay, this is the most difficult one. And I've read a lot of commentaries. So I have come to you this day with a very strong uh, uh, conviction as to what this is saying. And that strong uh, conviction is no one really knows what this is saying. Okay? I have no idea what this is saying. You can look at the commentaries. I can re- I'll refer you to them. They'll give you five, some will give you eight different ways of taking this. And one will argue for the fourth way. And one will argue for the fifth. No, the fourth is wrong. Fifth. And one will say, fourth and fifth are stupid. Sixth. And you're like, good night, guys. They don't know. Okay? In fact, in my footnotes, you can read them. One guy says, however we translate it, just don't make sure you don't take away from the point of the second part. That's all you got to do, okay? So translate it however you want. Just do not compromise what it says in the second part. And what is the second part? The second part is that glorious statement where God tells him that he who messes with the apple of my eye messes with me. Do you understand the motive for why you should flee, Christian? Why is it that, that any kind of compromise that you have currently you're involved in, you should flee from? Why? Because God loves you. You're precious to him. Zephaniah 3.17. I was meditating on this this last week in my own personal quiet times. Zephaniah 3.17 says, God rejoices over us with joy. And I ask myself, ought I not to rejoice over him? He rejoices over me. Should we not rejoice back about who God is, his character, his greatness, his glory, his love? Zephaniah is saying, man, Christian, all you who are compromised in a compromised relationship with the world, do you understand? You are the apple of God's eye. He loves you so much he's going to die for you. That's why you shouldn't stay there. That's why you shouldn't stay and live with the, with the daughter of Babylon. Flee because your husband, Christ, loves you more than life. Incredible. Then the second reason, number nine, verse nine. Behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will plunder, so that they will be plunder for their slaves. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. To wave your hands is a prophetic Miracle. Second Corinthians five or Second Corinthians. Second Kings five eleven. It's a picture of a prof, of a prophet who doesn't do the. Th- he doesn't change anything. He simply passively waves. It's a picture of a, of sovereignty. God is not going to go into Babylon and himself mess it up. God's simply going to wave his hand someday. And what's going to happen? The slaves of Babylon are going to rise up and basically plunder. You know what that's saying? The very uh, thing that Babylon does to be most successful, the thing that they delight in most, will be their undoing. You know what Zephaniah is saying here, or Zechariah is saying, saying, brothers and sisters, you got to flee. Secondly, not one, because God loves you, but two, because if you don't, the very thing that you think is the neatest thing about this world is going to bite you. The danger involved in worldly living, it's going to bite you. Right? Proverbs 5. He'll discipline us with our own sin. You don't want to be in love with the world because if you are, in the end, it's just going to hurt you. 
not as a punishment from God, but as a consequence of the nature of sin. It always comes with a bite. And then thirdly, would you notice with me verse, um, actually those are the, the two reasons. The next one has, has three. So brothers and sisters, first Psalm, if you are ones compromised in your walk, that's me, that's every one of you here, spend time this day meditating, this week, where am I compromised? And give me the grace because I know you love me more than life to flee, knowing that it's dangerous. It hurts my walk. I want to love you, Lord. Second part of the psalm, verses 10 through 13, a call to the faithful people of God. One word, rejoice. Notice with me, 10. Sing for joy and be glad. Um, These are strong words. Man, let's be a people. Now, strong words to a people living in a famine with people who hate them, attacking them, abusing them. That's the context of Zechariah and Haggai. With more work than they can imagine, work before them that they can't do by themselves. God says, in the midst of this, sing for joy. Be people filled with rejoicing. Brothers and sisters, I had a seminary professor used to in his sermons I heard it frequently, but one specific sermon sticks out. He started by saying, where's the joy? Where's the joy of Christianity? I just don't see it anymore. In other generations, beaten generations, persecuted generations, people walked around with the joy of the Lord, but we don't got it anymore. What happened? It's because we're in bed with Babylon. And the things of Babylon are what concerns us. Brothers and sisters, we're called to sing for joy. How do you sing for joy in a hard time? Three reasons, and my first point on the last page under C is wrong. Sing for joy. That's the exhortation. The first one is because of his fellowship. Crossed out, sing for joy, put because of his fellowship. Because of his fellowship. Look at the, the, the passage. Behold, I'm coming and I will dwell in your midst. Think about that. God Almighty is going to come and once again dwell. It brings us back to the garden and God walking in the cool of the, the day. God is going to, in Jerusalem, in the city in which he's someday going to build in Christ, he will be the basis upon which you and I fellowship. He'll be our fellowship. He'll be our delight and our joy. Why do you sing for joy? Because, brothers and sisters, this world can take nothing from you that God doesn't repay a hundredfold in Jesus Christ. You realize that? This world can take nothing from you that God doesn't give you so much more in Jesus Christ. You've got it in Christ. So so learn to rejoice in him. God, show me the glory of your being, who you are. Help me to understand you more. Seek his face, his fellowship, his um, abiding love. Brothers and sisters, second reason, because of the Gentile mission. Verse 11, and many nations, goyim, will join themselves to the Lord in that day. You know what Jerusalem's going to become? It's going to become a magnet for non-believers. I was meditating on this, realizing that when this was written, this was all in the future. Do you realize, I don't know if there's anyone in this congregation who would claim to be Jewish, nationally. Um, What's the word? Ethnically, not nationally, ethnically. I'm Jewish. We're all Gentiles. We're the fulfillment of this. Everyone here is here because of the glory of God in the Jerusalem that he was going to build, that he's built in Jesus Christ. And that is because now Gentiles are going to come to this city and inhabit it in fulfillment of the covenant promise made to Abraham in Genesis 12. Wow. And then, and then just to let you know, there's not going to be two different levels, right? Jews in one quarter of the city and Gentiles in the other, what's he say? The same promise he gave to the verse 10, he ends here. Then I will dwell in your midst and you will know the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. They're two going to fellowship with Christ. We're not two different memberships. We're one in the same body. We're one body, one vine, one people in Christ, in the city of Jerusalem. Wow, that's us. Thirdly, verse 11 or verse 12 And this was amazing. 
And the Lord will possess Judah, not the land, the people, as his portion in the holy land. And will again choose Jerusalem. This is incredible. You know the word, the language there, the Lord will possess Judah. I skipped Deuteronomy 32 earlier on in, in verse 8. Let me read it. It says, the Lord's portion, so the apple of my eye comes from Deuteronomy. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. That's why he's the apple of his eye. This language in verse 12 speaks, get this, of God, very anthropomorphically. God looking at the universe he made. I went back up. When I was, Brian, I don't know. More than 20 years ago, it was before we started this church. 25 years ago, 30 years ago, my folks were moving from, their, from the home I grew up, my, my childhood home, which was packed with stuff. They're moving from a massive home to a smaller home. So we, they, they held it, they coined it a name it, claim it night. So we came to their home, and all the things they didn't want, they, they identified, and we went around as, a fan, as kids. It was a name it, cl- uh, claim it. So I want that, you know, you're up, Greg, you're up. I want the bed, it's yours. All right, and then so it was name and claim at night. And so we could say, you know, what did I want? And it, it was reminiscent. We all joked on that time because my brother Boyd, years before that, as a young boy, told the entire family, made this announcement that when my parents died, all he wanted was the television set. <laughs> it was it. And we're like, Boyd, that's all you can get. You know, you can't get dad's tools. You can't get the, you know, you can only get the TV. And it was a funny joke. Interesting. I think of that when I think of this. God looks at the universe, the entire universe, two over, what is it, 200 billion galaxies over, right? man, if that's right, I forget now. Wow, so much. You know the only thing God wants? Just one thing. This is my brother Boyd. I want one thing from this world. One thing. You know what it is? It's you. Isn't that crazy? God wants you. Do you realize how precious you are? You're more important than, 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 than all the gold that Bill Gates owns. You are, you are something that is the epitome of the essence of desire. God. God desires you. He wants you. So why do you sing for joy when the world has its back, or it's turned their back, so the world's attacking you? Why? Because brothers and sisters... God loves you. And, and right now, he's building his church. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Gentiles are coming in. And lastly, because brothers of all peoples and all places and all things in this universe, he's chosen you. Now we end with verse 13. And I call this the Selah moment. Okay? Be silent, all flesh. In other words, be in awe and wonderment before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. It's believed by most commentaries that this is not just the ending of the third vision, but the ending of all three visions. It's, it's the Selah moment of all three visions. What's Selah? In the Psalter, you will recall, you'll read that word Selah. And it's a musical annotation, and it means uh, something. I've read a lot of suggestions as to what it could mean. The best I've ever read is the one which says it means to pause and think about what you just said. Pause and wonder. Okay? So, for example, Psalm 33, David is running from, uh, uh, from, Absalom, uh, from Absalom. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. He's just in turmoil. For thou hast smitten, but thou hast smitten all my enemies on the cheek. Thou hast shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Thy blessings be upon thy, thy people. Selah. David's saying, God, save me. But, but in that context, think about this, what God does to the wicked. Now think about it. And all of a sudden you realize as bad and as dark as it was, it wasn't that dark at all, David. Because your God was with you, protecting you. That's Selah. It is, if you've ever sung in a choir and you've had this experience, I've had this now a, a couple times when I've sung in choirs, not a lot. It's when you're singing in the choir and you're focusing on the tune, right? I got the tenor line and I got to master this. I got it. I got it. We got it. The tenor line's perfect now. And then you go there and you sing it perfectly, all the tenors do, and you think that the choir director is going to go, whoa, Pavarotti. 
you know, wow. Instead, they look at you and say, all right, not bad. Now, and, and, and this is why. Think about what you're singing. You're not, we were focusing on just getting the, you know, right notes. The choir says, okay, you got the right notes, but you're not singing them right. Think about what you're saying. That's Selah. Think about what you're singing, Christian. Think about what you just read. Three visions. In the deepest, darkest times of life, vision one, God is your comfort. Think about that. Be quiet for one moment. Silence before that glorious truth. Secondly, God will vindicate his people. Right now, there's an ever-growing, tightening noose around every non-believer in this world. And sit in wonder of the God who's claimed you to be a citizen in his city. Let's pray. Father, what a joy. Thank you for this incredible book of Zechariah. Give us the grace, O Lord, as your people to pause and wonder and consider all that you have given us in Christ this day, our citizenship, and the promises contained therein, the guarantees. God, I pray that you'd prick our hearts today, that you'd take the paddle boards and and reignite our hearts Shock him, O Lord, as we think and gaze upon your love, your sovereignty, your glory, your purpose and your plan, and your value, that of all the things in this world, what you value most is us. God, we love you. Thank you. We pray you give us the grace, O Lord, to indeed be a people who would respond with joy and shouts of singing and of rejoicing. For truly, you are it. We love you, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's go to the